0: This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor, patiently, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? I am doing very well this morning. I got some good sleep. Last, last time we recorded, I was a little groggy, so hopefully I'll be on my game today. <laughs> well, you still had a pretty fun, busy week, it looked like. At least at least you sent me a, a note with you and a, and, and a good friend, uh, Kim McNeil.
1: Yeah, that was
0: really fun. I was out in San Diego for work and I messaged Kim
1: because there was a time a couple years ago where I was in Seattle and we tried to get together and it just didn't work out. But this time we ended up having a couple hours to hang out. It was wonderful to meet her in person. And yes, she is just as lovely in real life as she is online. So yeah, we had some some good street tacos. And of course, we hit a bookstore, <laughs> which will shock absolutely no one. But yeah, it was it was wonderful.
0: That was fun. Paul yeah. sent me a, a a Marco Polo with them, both saying hello while they're eating tacos. Yeah, I was a little bit jealous, but not in a negative way. Just yeah. looked like fun. Yeah, it was <laughs>
1: definitely a wish you were here, not a nanny nanny boo boo kind of thing.
0: <laughs> well, I've got some, uh, some news for you, Paul. Uh, on on July 3rd or July 5th, I think I'm going to go up to Salt Lake and see Anthony again. Oh, nice. Because again. Dorian's going to be in town. Oh, wow. <laughs> not, not that I wouldn't see Anthony again anyway. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> you are invited, but we recognize that that's a little bit of a ways away over a holiday. That would be a little but... bit of a hike. I will
1: uh, run it by the family, but
0: I'm guessing I might not be able to, but I will just have to live vicariously. <laughs> we'll 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 make sure that we include you in some way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's fun. All right, and as listeners may be here, thanks to your delightful laugh, we have <laughs> a guest joining us today, Miss Bonnie Renzi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. <laughs> well, we have been communicating with you online pretty much since we started the podcast, Bonnie, and it's always been delightful. You have been uh, you know, you send us in your thoughts on books and episode topics and things like that. It's always been so fun, but I I don't think many of our listeners um, will know who you are. Is there anything you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm, i It can be reading related if you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I, for many years, um, was in a group on library thing. I don't know if you are familiar with library thing, but I was, uh, in a group there and, um, got expanded my reading greatly. Oh, since the let for the last 15, 20 years. Um, I'm from Buffalo. I live in Buffalo, um, where it's kind of cool right now. And we're still struggling with the smoky ash that's, uh, all oh, okay. over the place. But, um, uh as far as reading, I have found that since I've been on in the twitter on Twitter with uh, the people who read there, my reading has changed quite a bit. I do do a lot more journals and diaries and letters mm-hmm. than I ever did. Never did in the past, really. <laughs> uh and my uh fiction reading has changed a little bit. I've always read the NYRB books, but now I'm reading a lot more translations.
0: That fun. is fun. Uh, yeah, well, Kim McNeil, speaking of, with the NYRB Women 23, has gotten me to read a lot more out of my usual ruts. And that's been delightful with the the different journals. And we recently finished uh, Love's Work by Gillian Rose. That was something else. <laughs> that was really hard for me. I would have put it down if it weren't for the the reading challenge and the fact that i could just say all i have to do is read 10 pages today and and i'm glad that i had that force behind me because i didn't want to put it down it was just kind of hard it's a philosophical memoir and i don't really know philosophy that well so i found it a little bit foreign but so rich still and so uh, impressive and i'm really glad that i read it i feel like it's really a book i need to reread and i'm actually excited for that process so it's nice to get stretched sometimes and find things that you wouldn't otherwise find or if you did find them you you know i'm i'm not saying i would have given up on page you know at the end it would have probably been five or ten pages in that i just thought oh now's not the time of life for this Mm -hmm. but it was and i and i really really thought it was great so it's it, yeah. it is nice to stretch out a little bit. So it yeah, is, and
1: especially when you have a group of great people like we all have online yeah. to kind of guide you and and you know talk about it and everything. It's amazing how much more you can get out of a book when you're chatting, <laughs> even if it's through messaging
0: with somebody. It's so much fun. Yeah, yeah. and. So we are so happy to have you, Bonnie. Uh, we did try to do this a couple of weeks ago. As folks know, this is our Barbara Pym episode, but we had some technical difficulties. And so thank you so much for not just saying, ah, forget it, <laughs> <laughs> but for for putting it on giving us a rain check and uh, letting us uh, uh, join you on this uh, Saturday morning to discuss Barbara Pym here in a few minutes. <laughs>
2: well, thank you for having me.
0: And we do have a little bit of business before we get to that point. We want to uh, do our giveaway drawing. And oh. we, we got, you know, there's been a, a, several emails and direct messages and even a few like Twitter reels where people said, oh, you know, here's my summer reading horizons based on all this. And I think what I'll do is put that in our newsletter, some of those, uh, and and share them there we have quite a bit of business today <laughs> yes, we do. um w- one that i'm thinking of particularly though is uh again just because she's been coming up in the episode kim mcneil mm-hmm. said that she was inspired by it to make plans for august which includes reading helen dewitt's the last samurai and holy cow did she get a lot of people signing up for that yes, uh she did, including um, me <laughs> yeah i finally was like fine i guess I guess this is the place to be in August. I'll join. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can't sit out of that. <laughs> no, you feel left out. <laughs> did you see that, Bonnie? I saw, did you get I saw a, it. A, I I haven't that?
2: decided yet if I'm going to take the plunge. Aren't you also doing a summer
0: read? We are. Yeah. We are, and that that comes up now. Our summer read is quite short. Mm-hmm. Um, we did our we did our summer book club uh, poll. As we kind of mentioned at the end of last episode, should we do the book club again? Mm-hmm. Yes, we should. <laughs> we 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 did, and so we did a poll on Twitter, and once again there was a lot of fun back and forth. Uh, but one book had it through the whole thing. The the books that we we decided to try to to highlight and and make our guest our our book club from they're all uh, novella length, fairly mm-hmm. short. There was uh, Pedro. Paramo by Juan Rulfo, A Love Child by Doris Lessing, Reading Turgenev by William Trevor, and The Dry Heart by Natalia Ginsburg. And it was not very close for poor uh, A Love Child by Doris Lessing. That got 2.7% of the vote, which is like maybe six or seven votes, is all. <laughs> it got it was a little bit closer um Pedro Paramo came in third with twenty five point two percent of the vote, and uh while it never felt close, it kind of ended up close reading Turgenev got thirty four point two percent of the vote, but the one that always had you know around forty percent was the dry heart, and it finally won at the end of it all with thirty seven point nine percent of the vote. That's Natalia Ginsberg's uh, very short book that starts quite shockingly. Uh, ha- have either of you read The Dry Heart yet?
2: No, I haven't.
1: I have not, but I remember talking to you, Trevor, while I was standing in uh, Nashville at Parnassus Books, and I was ha- having one of those existential <laughs> moments where I had a stack of books, and I called Trevor, as I often do, help, what do I do? <laughs> and that was one of the books that made the short list that I ended up carrying out the door, so... Definitely has a Trevor nice. connection for me.
0: Did I send you a picture of the opening paragraph or tell you, Paul, just stop and read the opening <laughs> I <page."> think you <laughs> did tell me exactly that, yep. <laughs> How will you be able to walk away if you don't? I'll leave it as a, as a surprise for people as they pick up the book, but that is what we will be reading. Uh, we will be recording our episode on that book in the last part of July. And we're very excited because we will be joined by... Uh, at least uh, at least one guest is confirmed, um, maybe two, and uh, the one who has confirmed is uh, Mervé Emre, who you know has an article in the New Yorker this week about Susan Taubes. I mean, every time I think, oh, I really love that book, and I go look for stuff on it, uh, Mervé has. Uh, already written about it in such delightful ways <laughs> including about the dry heart you know
1: <laughs> so i know she's, the she's amazing guest she's... for it <laughs> i feel like she is everywhere all the time i don't know how she has the energy <laughs> to,
0: to not only do it but do it so well it's very impressive yeah so i'm looking forward to to that conversation and uh, the other one we're trying to get lined up because you know we're going to probably bring you up every maybe 2 minutes in this episode kim apparently so but is kim mcneil <laughs> She, she was she was the one putting up the biggest fight against Francis, who was uh, who was uh, cheering on and and uh, you know giving people all kinds of incentives to vote for reading Turgenev by William Trevor. Yeah, she was. It, that was fun. It, it is the second year in a row that uh, William Trevor has lost our voting poll, and a little and part of Trevor dies every time. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard. Not Trevor, not William Trevor. <laughs> I mean, I we we always pick books where we're good with any of them that win. For sure. But it does feel like maybe next year or maybe in the fall even, I don't know. My wife thinks William Trevor just seems like a good fall author. We for should sure. do a poll that is just for William Trevor books. So that he that's can't a good lose. idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the <laughs> books that I picked up in Uh, San Diego was a William Trevor book, too. So I'm building up my collection. I'd be happy if we
0: decided to do that. Awesome. All right. Well, we do. So after that, with that announced, our uh, Summer Book Club plans, um, we will have to do a quick giveaway on that. Um, But let's, uh, let's see. We can probably do that next time so listeners be on the the you know listen out <laughs> for a giveaway we want to give away at least a copy of a dry heart of the dry heart um to a listener before the book club and so listen up for that in, in the next episode that we we come out with in 2 weeks and uh but we have a giveaway to announce today uh, I have already gone through the brrrr, ding, you know, who who uh-huh. wins. Yeah. Paul, are, are, are you ready for me to uh, announce who won the copy of the Archipelago edition of Jean Jono's Occupation Journal? I'm ready. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. All right. The winner this time is Nina Lehman. Ooh. Nina, congratulations. She sent a very nice note over about her reading plans uh, including things like The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell, mm-hmm. uh, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, um, uh, The Village Idiot by Lawrence Stern. So it should be uh, fun, <laughs> a, a busy reading uh, uh, choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so We'll have to see if Mr. Giono joins that summer
1: uh, group, but no pressure. The book is yours, whether <laughs> you decide to read it now or 10 years from now, as
0: I am sometimes guilty of doing yeah, and so these are some books that she does a uh, she does a book group, and so they they seem to have picked a lot of really good, really good books. I like that that book book group that mm-hmm. you're in, Nina. So, congratulations! We will get that sent over to you. We'll have to write and get your uh, the best place to to ship that off to. So, be on the okay. lookout for that email. <laughs> congratulations! All right, let's see the next bit of business, Paul. What have you been reading lately? Yeah, well, as I mentioned in our last
1: episode on summer reading and reading horizons, I've been eyeing that stack of unread Robert McFarlane's for a few few years now and kind of savoring them, but also starting to get more and more tempted. And I mentioned The Old Ways, that book, um, last week, and I decided mm-hmm. to go ahead and crack it open. So I've been spending some time in there and just, as both of you know, it's so nice when you return to a favorite author, whether it's been you know a couple of weeks or a couple of years, there's just that feeling of familiarity and being immersed with a voice that you love. Um, and I just, as as always, I love his descriptions of nature and these little rabbit trails he takes about various explorers and walkers and different people. So yeah, I've been really lo- loving that. I was going to read a quick excerpt from it. Um, it's, this one is all about him returning to ancient paths, but it also, it reminds me a lot of the Rebecca Solnit book that I've talked a lot about, which is all about walking. So this whole opening section is just talking about walking in a historical way, but also as usual with Robert McFarlane with some very beautiful and poetic side trails. So it says, the way marking of old paths is an esoteric lore of its own involving cairns, gray weathers, sarsens, long longstones, milestones, cromlechs, and other guide signs. On boggy areas of Dartmoor, fragments of white china clay were placed to show safe paths at twilight, like Hansel and Gretel's pebble trail. In mountain country, boulders often indicate fording points over rivers. Utzi's stone in the Cairngorms, for instance, which marks where the Alt-Moor burn can be crossed to reach traditional grazing grounds, and onto which has been deftly incised the petroglyph of a reindeer that when evening sunlight plays over the rock seems to leap to life. Paths and their markers have long worked on me like lures, drawing my sight up and on and over. The eye is enticed by a path, and the mind's eye also. The imagination cannot help but pursue a line in the land, onwards in space, but also backwards in time to the histories of a route and its previous followers. As I walk paths, I often wonder about their origins, the impulses that have led to their creation, the records they yield of customary journeys, and the secrets they keep of adventures, meetings, and departures. And it goes on and on. I had like four or five paragraphs marked that I could just keep reading his prose, but I'll leave it at that for now. But like I said, it's just there's something about him. He's it's like he's taking you by the hand and leading you wherever he's going. But then he's also just has this wonderful knowledge of he does the research, but he weaves it in very seamlessly where it just feels like he's just talking to you as you're walking along with him. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm maybe 40 50 pages in and just so happy to be back in in his world. Um, so I've really been enjoying that. And then I also just decided to revisit an author who I have only had a brief encounter with, which is Louise Erdrich. Mm, um and yeah i've always i listened to her book the roundhouse a few years ago and it didn't work but i you know how sometimes we have talked about with audiobooks if you get the wrong narrator it can kind of ruin an otherwise wonderful experience for you and i'm pretty sure that's what happened there so i've decided to to try her again because i know i can just tell she's a good fit for me Mm -hmm. um and so i picked up the sentence which is absolutely wonderful i don't know if either one of you have read it but Just a quick blurb. It says a small independent bookstore in Minneapolis is haunted from November 2019 to November 2020 by the store's most annoying customer. (laughs) Flora dies on All Souls Day, but she simply won't leave the store. Tookie, who has landed a job selling books after years of incarceration that she survived by reading, quote, with murderous attention, must solve the mystery of this haunting while at the same time trying to understand all that occurs, occurs in Minneapolis during a year of grief, astonishment, isolation, and furious reckoning. So I've really been enjoying it. It's um, as people could probably guess if they know anything about Louise Erdrich. Um, it's based basically in in her her real store in Minneapolis, which is Barkskin Books, and it's kind of one of those meta things where, kind of like a Paul Auster novel, Louise actually shows up in the novel from time to time. You know, she's working in the background while the main characters are going about their business and investigating this haunting. So so far, I'm really loving it. It has all kinds of wonderful stuff about the eccentric bookstore customers coming in, the joy of helping somebody find a book, sometimes what a pain it is to deal with some of these people. Um, lots of great references to, you know, Dennis Johnson and Clarice Lispector and on down the line. So um, yeah. Did you say you have read that one, Bonnie?
2: I have. I listened to the audiobook and it was narrated by Louise Erdrich. So it was absolutely fabulous.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know. I agree. I'm, I'm feeling the same way about it. Yeah. She's one of my perennial, I hope she wins the Nobel Prize. Mm. I think she writes important, beautiful books. Um, my favorites are The Plague of Doves and La Rose mm. at this point. Um, my, least favorites, my least favorite was Future Home of the Living God and uh, The Roundhouse, which I, oh, I liked The Roundhouse, but it was definitely one where I finished it and thought, hmm, that wasn't quite what I what I love from her books, yeah, uh, but La Rose and the plague of doves, Paul, you, whoa, those okay. are amazing. I actually have not read the sentence yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been looking forward to that because, uh, you know, she's often been a finalist. It feels like anyway, of like the Pulitzer and finally, mm-hmm. you know, finally, finally won right. <laughs> uh, yeah. with the, uh, was it the sentence that won the Pulitzer? Or was it the, no, it was the Night Watchman that won the, prize. yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Okay, for some reason, which I haven't read either. It's kind of been annoying me in my head where I'm like, I've always read her books as they come out. But I, after the Future Home of the Living God, I didn't like it at all, really. Mm. <laughs> so I I didn't start the Night Watchman. And then it, then the sentence came out and I'm like, well, I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm falling behind in, in that pursuit, but I, I won't be. It's not going to be uh, never ending. I will, uh, I will get back on the yeah, and and read those both and catch back up because otherwise I've read not all of her books, not all of her earliest books, but uh, most of her books. And again, just a favorite. Yeah, that's great. And I'm like, glad to
1: hear that about both the Roundhouse and yeah. the, the other two that you mentioned that are favorites because it, it's always good. Sometimes if you maybe you start in a place that's not necessarily the best, and and that's mm-hmm. why I wanted to do this because I knew that there was no way, uh, you know, I clearly was missing something by not necessarily caring for that first one. So I'm
0: glad to hear it. That's interesting how she has not really come up in our podcast, despite being a favorite of mine. I do put mm. a lot of that on the, the last few years. I haven't read her newest mm. books probably. So yeah. we'll see if we can fix that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, if you, Whenever you get to the sentence so far, so good. Excellent. Excellent. And here I am, like, can I fit that in today? (laughs) No, you can't. You can't. Maybe. You never know. (laughs) Uh, How about you, Bonnie? What have you been reading lately?
2: Well, um, I think it was Rebecca of Books and Bikes, Mm -hmm. is it? Uh, Mm -hmm. Who got me to read This Little Art by Kate Briggs, uh, which is about translation and um, Mm -hmm. all the ins and outs of translation. I really enjoyed it. I learned an awful lot. Um, I have a little passage I could read if you, if you think it would be good. Absolutely. Um, There's a reason they, they redo translations every certain number of years or when it seems like there hasn't been one in a while. And that's because of the changes in how translation is approached and um, how it's done. But um, I thought this was interesting. Um, Glory for the translator is borrowed glory, or so Tim Parks recently announced in a column for the New York Review of Books. And there's no way around this. Parks's point is that a translator's work is celebrated if and only if, the work she is translating is worth celebrating. There is no separating her achievement from that of its original author. As a consequence of this, Parks argues, mediocre translators of successful books sometimes get unduly praised, while those more talented translators translating less visible works hardly get noticed at all. So it really all depends on what you're asked to to, to translate. If it's a, you know, a well-known work or an important work um, you're going to get more recognition than maybe a better translation of a lesser well-known work. But yeah, I learned a lot about translation in this book. I found it very, very interesting and really enjoyed it. I just finished that the other day. And of course, This morning, I started Summer Will Show by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is the next book (laughs) in the um, group that Kim has going, of New York uh, Review Book of Women. And um, it starts off pretty good, so we'll see. I kind of have been able to stick to the schedule, which... I'm surprised I could because I've tried these group reads before and have never been able to stick to the schedule and just <laughs> forge ahead and uh read on. But this so far this this year I've been able to do it. So it's starting out it started out pretty good.
0: Excellent. That's what I have not started it yet, but I got it pulled aside last night. I will be starting it today because I've also and maybe a little bit surprising to me. I haven't missed a day. I've told Paul this uh, maybe not too long ago. I've I've been on that schedule. It's doable, it's exciting, and now I feel like I've just in a good rhythm with it. So I am a little bit nervous about Summer Will Show, not because of the book. I'm excited to read it. It is our longest, I believe, so far. I think so. And the text is a little bit smaller, and so you know, definitely part of the ability for me to do it is that it's always like, oh, I can sit down. I can get that done. It's not going to be that disruptive. And this one I'm like, okay, okay. But I I will do it. I will do it. Well,
1: I read that book a couple of years ago. And I think once, I don't think you'll have any trouble getting sucked in. And and once you're in, you know, it'll carry you along pretty well. I I I don't remember it being a tough one to to burn through the pages. So I think you'll be good. But yeah, it is a long one compared to some of the other ones we've all been reading, or especially you two have been reading. I've dipped in and out of this book group that you two have been very impressive sticking right with it
0: it it has been fun it's it's been i wrote in my little thing on instagram about uh love's work i said there have been many reasons why i've really enjoyed this one it's gotten me to finish books that might be i otherwise wouldn't you know like with love's work uh but also it's gotten me to read books that have been on my you know shelf that i've thought i want to read that soon but it's you know soon as always you know in in a little while. Um, and it's gotten me to reread some of my favorites. And I've reread more books this year than I think I ever have in the past. And that's been a really nice, nice thing that we'll, we'll get into when we do our year in review at the end of the mm. 2023, Paul. I'd yeah. like to talk about my rereading uh, successes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. And on my end, uh, Paul, I you, you influenced me, but not just you. I got a lot of uh, people... Uh, telling me that when they heard me ask a question about what American classic should I read at the end of mm-hmm. our last episode, uh, you know there there were there were other suggestions for sure, but almost universally people said you you have to read Nella Larson's Passing. I was hoping that's what you were going to say. Yeah, so I went and picked it up. I started it yesterday. I'm uh, done with chapter two, which you know isn't very far into the book. Other than this is a f- Relatively short book at, you know, what is it, 120 pages in this Penguin Classics edition? Yeah, 120 pages exactly. So, uh, what a beautifully written book so far and very, very, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, it takes a bit to get your footing in a book. And I certainly don't have my footing in terms of knowing what's going on everywhere other than what I know from the, you know, description of the book. Right. But, it starts out as you may remember with uh, one character, Irene Redfield, has gotten a letter in the mail. She knows who sent it. She's a little bit, maybe, annoyed, exasperated, um, as she reads the the letter, and it's uh, from an old friend, Claire Kendry. And it what a what a way to start that that book mm-hmm. and that uh, that that the end of that chapter one, I was just like, oh, I've got to read chapter two right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just, uh, but it's it just beautifully written. And I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I, I've i heard of this book a little bit over the years, but more in the last few years. But when mm-hmm. I was younger, not at all that I remember.
1: No, and it's at a, it's a real resurgence. I know, I had the same thought. How, how have I not heard about this? We've talked about that. It's one of the exciting things about reading is mm-hmm. these gems that you're like, how is this not talked about every day, but yeah, um, but it's still kind of nice. So I'm glad.
0: Yeah, it's, you're right. It starts off strong and it just continues that way through the whole book. Oh, good. And yeah, really enjoying it. Uh, the other book that I started this week that I, I won't go into too far because it's uh it's forthcoming and will likely be on our episode where we do our most anticipated books of the latter half of 2023. Mm-hmm. But I got an, uh, a, a, an early, uh, copy of uh, Lauren Groff's The Vaster Wilds which is also just so beautifully written and I've fallen right into that one so one to look forward to and I'll talk more about that on its release but those are the two things that you know other than lots of other things but those are the two I wanted to highlight for what have what have I been reading lately nice sounds like you have a great great lineup right now All right, well, let's take a little bit of a a stretch and we will gear up to get on with the main topic of the show. Thanks for joining us for all of that preliminary stuff, Bonnie. We'll get into Barbara (laughs) Pym. All right. It's our author focus episode. We're going to be talking about Barbara Pym today. And I have to start with a little bit of a confession, but also with a reach out to fellow folks out there who are very intrigued by Barbara Pym, have maybe even considered her an author that will be one of their favorites, but have just not delved into her work very far. This was kind of hard to do, Um, We do these author-centric episodes, Paul and I, and the ethos behind, you know, the the way we wanted to approach them is just like we were talking about an author we're both interested in around, uh, you know, going out for, for dinner or something some evening, having a long conversation late into the night. And that meant we didn't have to read all of their works, we didn't have to become experts, and maybe even we didn't have to read any of their works. The other one would be interested enough to to kind of carry that load, while you know my my own in this case uh, personal interest could uh, could carry me into an exciting conversation about about it. I have read three Barbara Pym novels, and I felt so much pressure to just sit down and make sure I read all of them, and I had to kind of say no. I don't want. That's actually not the way I want to mm-hmm. do her work it might be detrimental if I read all of her books in a couple of months. Might have been great. I don't know. But with this one, I thought I'm going to hold off. I'm going to talk about the, what I like about her books, but also be that interested, uh, but rather relatively ignorant <laughs> uh, person at the, at the dinner table. Uh, and hopefully a stand in for some of our listeners who feel they're in the same boat that I'm in. You know, so we won't necessarily probably go into a lot of spoilers about these books, if they're even possible to really spoil uh, or anything like that. Um, but you don't have to have read any of Barbara Pym's works to kind of join in this conversation. Let us know, you know, on, on your end, what, what intrigues you or have you been intrigued by Barbara Pym? She certainly comes up a lot in our she circles. Does. And so for years, she's been one of my favorite authors that I just haven't really read yet. (laughs) (laughs) Just with that one minor detail. (laughs) Right, right. I'm intrigued by my ideas of what her books are, and it makes me excited to read them. And I've, like I say, I've read three, and they've all been relatively recently. Uh, And they have matched and exceeded and been different from, but also perfectly in line with what folks have led me to expect to the point where I'm just excited to keep on developing this relationship. Mm-hmm. But they're pretty sporadic. I have read her first one, Some Tame Gazelle, uh, which I think is the most Barbara Pym of all the ones I read. You know, when you think of Bake cells and The the mm-hmm. the New Vicar and, uh, you know, all this stuff. Um, I read Excellent Women, one of my favorite books of 2021 when I read it. And really, you know, that's that one just made me think okay this is this is also different from what i'm expecting there's so much there mm-hmm. and then i read what what I'm, what might be your favorite paul quartet in autumn mm. and very different from very. what i expected uh from a barbara pym novel even after hearing you talk about it so often that one was the most um, outlier but also Barbara Pimmy of uh, you know, in many ways as well. Mm -hmm. So that just to give you my background with uh, Barbara Pym, but I I also wanted just to start with that because it feels like an important confession, something to have out on the table.
1: (laughs) Well, I I will follow up with a confession of my own because as you have not (laughs) read any
0: of them, huh? Yeah, exactly. I've never even (laughs) I've never even heard of her. Who is she? No. Um, this is no, but we invited Bonnie. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. No, but I
1: was going to say, as the default, you know, supposed expert, I have only read one more of her books than you have. Actually, um, oh. I've read four. So I have read *Some Tame Gazelle*. I've read *Crampton Hodnet*, *Excellent Women*, and a few green leaves. So it's and not *A Quartet that, in Autumn*. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. So you've read right. five. Thank you. Thank you. Yes leaving out my favorite would not be a good thing. So I have read five. So see back, reestablished to expert status. There you are. Like perfect, that. perfect. Yeah. No, as I've mentioned, though, she, you know, especially during the pandemic is where I really felt a connection with her. You know, during those lockdown times, I was kind of, I think subconsciously searching for a certain type of book. And I found her and it just fit perfectly. So several of her books that I read during that time, provided so much solace and comfort to me, which is interesting because I was thinking about it. I mean, there is something soothing about her books for sure, but they're not saccharine. They're not even necessarily always feel-good books, you know, feel-good books in the traditional sense of that. Um, I know she's often compared to Jane Austen, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, there's a humor to her books, but also that honest, like unflinching look at humanity. So with that comes some humor and some comfort, but it's not like she's just, you know, like a, a cozy type of a, a writer by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination. So it's always interesting to me how much comfort I get from her, even though there's some tough topics that are covered and some loneliness and all kinds of things like that. Um, yeah. We can talk more about some common themes that she has, but I am very glad that we brought Bonnie on because Bonnie <laughs> give us a little background, but I, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, you have read all of them at least once and maybe you're going through another time. Yes.
2: I'm, I'm rereading them right now. Um, in their order of publication, uh, in 2013, I got into a group that was reading all of, uh, Pim's books, um, because it was her centenary. And, um, Mm. that was the first time I'd read her. So 10 years ago, um, she was a wonder to me. And there's no reason that I should have been drawn in the way I was. I don't know any anthropologists. I never go to a jumble <laughs> sale. I, I, I very seldom have milky drinks. I don't know any was
0: the Vickers, the Bickers. wasn't
2: it? <laughs> the Vickers. Um, and the Dottie Unmarried Sisters. I, I just I, I don't know what the appeal was to me, but I fell hook, line, and sinker just right from the very First book which was um the one you mentioned some tame gazelle some tame <clears throat> um quartet and autumn it really you said outlier it is an outlier um because it's it's was her last book she wrote a couple of years before she died and um it deals with aging and loneliness in a way that
0: mm-hmm.
2: not a lot of writers could but um I think it's her best book. Uh, and I really, really liked it, but so different from all the rest mm-hmm. of them. And if I had you, had, you asked, you mentioned something about a favorite. The favorite is whichever one I'm reading. Uh, they're all just <laughs> so good. And um, the only one to set in a different category would be Quartet and Autumn to me.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. I wondered about that. Um, so, for for listeners, Barbara Pym first published *Some Tame Gazelle* in 1950, but it it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily her first uh, go around. She had written some uh, uh, at least one other book, uh, *Civil to Strangers*, uh, back in the 30s, and that was actually her last published book, published in 1987. About you know what? See when did she die? 1980. And so published seven years after her death. Um, and it was the fourth posthumously published book. Uh, Crampton Hodnet was also written uh, before Some Tame Gazelle and uh, written in the early 1940s, maybe even 1940 is what I'm seeing here. And it was published in 1985. And then there are a couple of other interesting. Posthumously published books that she wrote in the 1960s and the early 1970s An Unsuitable Attachment, published in 1982, but written in 1963 uh, after No Fond Return of Love and several other books that she had written. Um, And then she also had written An Academic Question in the early 1970s and didn't get it published in her lifetime. Came out in 1986. There's a reason for that. That's a fairly famous reason. She, after publishing, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six books, was dropped by her publisher. Was not able to get another publisher for nearly two decades. Yeah. Which, I guess, business wise, maybe there was some really good sense for that. But if you're interested in the literature, is <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. She had was- not like uh, stopped writing really great books their publishers just felt like she was old school out of fashion and didn't want to keep on putting them out and so she went a long time without publishing i believe that you know while she kept writing you know the i only see the two books that she finished during those years and couldn't couldn't um couldn't get published I think she also had a very uh, difficult time when finally came around to publishing a quartet in autumn. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, actually, let me let me um, let me look here because she also, after quartet in autumn, published the sweet dove died, and I'm not sure exactly. I'm sure there's some really good information, but I I believe that this was also one that had been kind of rejected um, during her you know, hiatus from publishing herself, not, not self-imposed, but her forced out hiatus and, Mm -hmm. um, a few green leaves as well. And so she had, she had continued writing, which must've been, must've been a little bit, uh, painful, never knowing if these books would come in, uh, come out, but Mm -hmm. she was a writer and kept them going. And, uh, from what I hear, Bonnie, you can help me understand Uh, several of those later books have connections, you know, almost like some recurring characters with uh, something like Excellent Women and such. So how fortunate we are that uh, there was a writing of the ship and she got published again.
2: (laughs) I think that's (laughs) one of the beauties of reading her books in order of publication is the reappearance Mm -hmm. of these characters almost in a cameo role. They don't have a lot. It's not a big role the second time around. Mm-hmm. It's just the mention of them. And then your mind goes back, oh, yeah, they, that character mm-hmm. was in this other book. It's, it's just something unusual that I don't think very many authors do. But um, I always find it delightful to find a character and remember what their role was <laughs> earlier. <clears throat>
1: Absolutely. And I've heard
0: that in Excellent Women, you know, it ends and we're not entirely sure of yeah. the future of this character. <laughs> but in a later book, she just kind of comes across as a cameo, as you say. And we get an insight into what happened to her and her relationships uh, af- after Excellent Women has ended. Yeah. And that's just kind of a fun little little touch there.
1: Yeah. That is but- really interesting. One of the things
0: that I think is so interesting about
1: her too is you mentioned that she went through those periods where she fell out of favor, you know, with not necessarily the public, maybe the public, but especially with the publishing world. And I'd read a little bit where she had some, you know, some moments where she was debating whether to quit, whether to try to change her writing style. And she just decided, no, that's not what I, something I'm Mm -hmm. comfortable with. And I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And I think it's really fascinating the way that um, she continues to be so relevant, despite the fact that even, what, 40, 50 years ago, they were saying she was outdated or out of fashion. And I was going to mention, I don't know if you're going to bring this up, Trevor, but in 1977, Mm -hmm. she basically, that's when her resurgence started. And she had three years left to live Mm -hmm. at this point. I know, so sad. Uh, And apparently the Times Literary Supplement published an article, you know, asking different famous literary figures and other people for their top literary figures of the time. And she was listed as the most underrated British novelist of the century by both Philip Larkin and Lord David Cecil. Um, and apparently, maybe directly, or at least pretty directly related to that article, that helped basically re- relaunch her career. Um, Philip Larkin and her were apparently friends and he was a huge advocate for her. And so having him speak up like that you Know, kind of got brought her back into the spotlight and caused that resurgence, which is fascinating. There's a couple of great quotes from him. He said, <laughs> Philip Larkin says, I'd sooner read a new Barbara Pym than a new Jane Austen, which I'm like, wow, that's some high praise there.
0: Um, my and wife, there was oh, on that really quick. Um, so someone I don't remember who it was on Instagram yesterday put the well, you know, what are you reading this weekend? They put a Barbara Pym book and on the blurb it has that. And my mm-hmm. wife said, how do you feel about this? And I was like, well, I haven't read a ton of Barbara Pym. So clearly if a new Jane Austen came out, I'd jump right on it. I've got plenty of Barbara Pym left to read, but right. right. You know, <laughs> well, and then another favorite that we've mentioned many times,
1: Ann Tyler, um, I saw a quote mm-hmm. from her. She said, whom do people turn to when they finished Barbara Pym? The answer is easy. They turn back to Barbara Pym. <laughs> and and I think Bobby can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I've also. So,
0: Bonnie, where are you at in your reread?
2: Well, I'm trying. I do one a month. So I'm on the. I'm going to be reading No Fond Return of Love this month. Um, What a title. I will say
0: there's. uh, Of all the titles, and Paul and I did an episode on great titles very recently, and I think I read every single one of Barbara Pym's books. Mm -hmm. They can feel maybe a little bit uh, hoity toity some tame gazelle, you know, no fond return of love, the sweet dove died. And yet I want to read all of those books, um, probably because I know she's not saccharine, you know, these are not hoity-toity, lofty, airy, um, books. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in what she, what she has in them. But, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, no fond return of love, is one that I'm like. Oh, I need to read that one next. I just really like that title.
2: Well, I always yeah, thought the title "Quartet in Autumn," when you consider mm-hmm. it's four people, senior citizens at the uh, you know towards mm-hmm. the ends of their lives. I always thought that title was brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah me too. It is. Yeah, I think about that title a lot. So I'm, I think I cut you off, Bonnie. You were about to say something when I asked you oh, about where you were at in your reread. Oh, did, did, I, did I derail at no, all? No, no, no,
2: no. <laughs> no, as I say, I'm, I'm doing one a month. So I've read Some Tame Gazelle, Excellent Women, Jane and Prudence, Less Than Angels, A Glass of Blessings. And this month I'll read No Fond Return of Love.
0: <clears throat> Excellent.
1: Such a cool project.
2: And then Quart- quartet of, in autumn will be next month, and then I'm going to fo- follow quartet of autumn with her book of uh, letters and diaries because I have I've had that mm. for years and I haven't read it, and supposedly there's a lot of connections to quartet in autumn in her diaries and letters, so I, I want to read that.
0: <laughs> so there's a there was an, a New Yorker article a few years ago. Let me let me um, it says when Barbara Pym couldn't get published by mm-hmm. Thomas Malone, and it's June of last year, uh so yeah, exactly a year ago, and I'll tell you he writes so well about to me a lot of what her uh books uh feel like, at least what I've read and also what i what I just know I'm gonna love about the ones I haven't read. <laughs> And I just love this idea. See, he says, religion, not faith, is central to Pym's Britain, and it feels both essential and irrelevant. The parish is perpetually shrinking, its congregants forever aging beneath the Victorian Gothic steeple. The church's rituals don't set souls aloft. They keep communicants tethered to the earthly round. The bodies buried in the churchyard never seem gone to heaven or hell. They just seem dead. Evensong... Uh, contemplative and resigned provides the real recurring music of pim's world however fewer ears may be inclining toward it that's so well written first off mm. but um yeah you know when i first started reading some tame gazelle and excellent women you know they're called funny books i think it says in one of the things like excellent women one of the funniest books of all time and i believe in the episode of backlisted where they talk about excellent women i think all of them talked about how funny it was Mm -hmm. it is funny but that's certainly and and it made me think i wonder if humor and and comedy and what's funny is kind of different uh in britain Mm -hmm. not not just the sensibility to it but what they are chuckling about Mm -hmm. as well um because I find this part of them much more apparent. Again, it could be because I just read Quartet in Autumn. Um, but right. this aspect of it is, you know, beyond all of the the kind of funny things with what they're eating. I guess that may be it. The foods that they eat, the bake cells, the... the uh, the hustle and bustle about the the new curate coming to town and how to entertain them and set up the tea and and all of that those are funny but part of the pathos of these books the the sadness is this aspect of it that mm-hmm. this is the the lives of these characters not not sad not that necessarily but she has such a good way of expressing and, and delving into these characters lives and to their interest in what life am I living and what life is everybody else living, (laughs) you know, excellent women is so good at people being curious about what else is going on with others Mm -hmm. and yet feeling like they themselves don't have a life worth telling anything about. I love that about him.
1: I agree. Now, I was looking at some pieces that were written in the New York Times that were doing similar things where it's talking about just how good she is about a lot of that stuff. And there's one in particular that describes her, and it touches on some of the same things you were just saying. It says she's a, and it's talking about why she's not outdated, why she's still relevant. It says she's a comedian of, of manners and a fastidious chronicler of her chosen country, whose maps stretch from Anglican suburbia to country parishes in metropolitan London. The church and its ritual provide endless fodder it gives structure to pym's novels as it gave structure to her life but it is a misapprehension to think her work speaks only to the devout there's an agnostic gospel even a non-believer can take away from pym and it goes like this life is full of mild durable disappointments it can even be funny (laughs) and it says she's formidable but also kind she can be prim but she's not stiff um, and I really like that. And it says, in her brisk, unsoppy course, she touches on topics of the church times that the times wouldn't dare infidelity, ennui, resignation, homosexuality, and the indignities of the age. And then this last paragraph I really like. He says, if that's quaint, we're quaint still. Her work offers the reassurance that we are all as bad and as good, as prickly and as resilient as any evensong attendee. It is a useful gratification in grating times. And I thought, Wow, that <laughs> speaks a lot to probably with the power of what I found during the lockdown. For example, it is a useful gratification in grading times. It's it's so relevant, even on the surface, if it doesn't always seem like it is. It, it is <laughs> so. I, I really liked that too.
0: That's that's excellent. And I wonder how much of the the chuckle we we just we have a different culture here than in England, um, because this is funny. There's a passage that it is in this New Yorker article. From Jane and Prudence, and it calls Prudence um single and approaching 30 as a sentimental misanthrope. <laughs> and that is a funny characterization of someone, a sentimental misanthrope, because of the seeming juxtaposition and what does that even mean? Um but I, the, this the is how Pym, this is Pym's description of, of her, it says disliking humanity in general, she was one of those excessively tender hearted people who are greatly moved by the troubles of complete strangers, in which she sometimes imagined herself playing a noble part. Hmm. I mean, that is funny. That is so funny. But also, I think for me, I feel the sadness that might be there too. The, um, The tenderness, maybe is a better word for it, than sadness. There is a humanity that is so well put in that one line that is very funny because it just seems you know it seems to get to someone's um quirks and and things in a way that is uh just so well done but um rather than the the humor being the thing that carries out it's the it's the tenderness there that i mm-hmm. feel about uh, about this character even though she may be a little bit uh, uh you know making making a little bit fun of this person but she's making fun of all of us i think don't we all have that somewhat <laughs> sentimental yeah. misanthrope that, you know, I, not to this extent, you know, but, but, you know, there's uh there's, it's so well, well put. And I, I think that that might be where people say, oh, these are so funny. And I go, yeah, I guess I can see it if I, if I think, ha ha ha. But when I read things like that, I think, oh, this you know, this person (laughs) who seems so familiar to me now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Bonnie, I, I I would love to get a few of your thoughts on, uh, what do you feel pulls you through these? What are some similarities? (laughs) What are some, what are some things that you find, um, Delightful to reencounter when you read the next book, or when you've come back and revisited her books uh in, in those ways. What what kind of gets you to where you're like I'm just going to keep on reading these. I'm <laughs> I'm in again. I'm in again.
2: Well, as I said, I I don't know what the draw is. I just know <laughs> that I'm drawn in. But I will say because you brought you mentioned that in um, wherever the, you said the article was from Paul um, her. I think she was way ahead of her time in her um, depiction of gay male characters. Yeah. You almost mm. don't know what's happening. You're reading and uh, like a glass of blessings when I was reading that. She, she the way she does it is all of a sudden it dawns on you. She She, this character is not even aware. She's trying to draw this man in and slowly over the course of the book, him reveals that it's never going to happen that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I think that is one of her, I really thought she was ahead of her time, uh, in that way. Um, her, Mm -hmm. her, the excellent women, they don't for the most part don't exist anymore. Not in the way she depicts them, but in the fifties, I think they were quite common. Mm -hmm. Um, not just in, And, and
0: what do you mean just for, for listeners? Um, what are the excellent women in quotes
2: okay uh, they, that,
0: that you're referring to? they
2: are the women who devote themselves to their church mm-hmm. and to the men will always uh you know do whatever is best for the man in their life or the men that they know mm-hmm. um in that way, but um
0: they're de- reliable they are self uh uh, denying because they are engaged in a greater work of preparing the cultural hall for the bake sale. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Um, excellent women is just, a. It, they always blame themselves for whatever, mm-hmm. whatever is going wrong or uh, no one else ever seems blameworthy. It must be something I did is, is their attitude. And, um, I don't know any excellent women anymore. Most of the women I know are independent thinking women who don't <laughs> do that kind of thing. But, um, at the time in the fifties, I think this was quite common. I, I know it was, um, but they're intelligent. They're accommodating, but they're repressed as women in the fifties mm-hmm. kind of were and, and frequently taken advantage of by men. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, Mildred Lathbury certainly fell into that category. Although, um, In the end, uh, with Everard Bone, who was, she was, she was uh, taking dictation from him, basically typing up his notes, the anthropologist. Um, But in the end, when you run into her a few books later, you'll see things worked out pretty well for her. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's, that's what I think the excellent women are. Uh, I did read an article in Salon. um, This is going back a number of years where they compared uh, Pim's work to Trollope, uh, some of the way uh, he develops his characters. And um, so between Austin and Trollope, that's that's not a bad comparison (laughs) for an
0: author. That's a pretty good company to be running in, for sure. And I thought of that when, you know, as you were talking earlier about characters making cameos, that is very much... uh, something that happens in the the chronicles of, of, of Barset and such. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think this is a good time to bring in our, our friend. Oh, you know, one of the inspirations for us getting together for this podcast, uh, Thomas, Thomas Hogglestock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of Trollope, Hogglestock is a, 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 a little, uh, community or a little place in, uh, Barsetshire that is where Thomas got his, his name there. Uh, he is one of the reasons I know who Pym is. He would bring her up quite often in the readers' podcast, yep. and I always really enjoyed it. And he said, uh, uh, in in response to a question you had, Paul, about Pym, I like their gentle pace. They have a sweet quality, but Pym is always sophisticated about it, and they never feel saccharine. They and this is something that I think we it would be worth talking about. They are the perfect antidote to modern media,
1: mm.
0: and. I do, you know, he seems to be talking about some of the things that you talk about when you're saying they just, they soothe during lockdown. They, you know, where there's all this stuff on that I have access to on my phone still. Uh, maybe it helped you feel more grounded in in community, in a, you know, even when you're without, you know, Absolutely. you can see the hustle and bustle of, of people through them. I don't know. It, well, and it's, it's an such a small, thing.
1: it's such a small community. It's It's like instead of a you know a broad view like we get in a lot of of big books this is a very zoomed in lens you know we're in a small community we're focused on a few lives Mm -hmm. but what i like is that 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 doesn't discount the importance of what's happening to them and the fact that they're representative of humanity as a whole you know as you said earlier trevor you can recognize people from your own life or your own history Mm -hmm. In these people, so even though it is maybe a group of a dozen people that we follow, or even less, you can recognize a lot of people, and you can see that in every little part of the world, there's these little, you know, <laughs> common themes in these characters that you recognize. So, I do think that there's a lot to that of just being zoomed into this one little area and focusing in on just their day to day lives, um, creates a calmness. But again, you, you could discount that, and, and you could do her a disservice by not realizing that there's a lot more going on than just that, but it is one of the things I love so much about it. Can I follow up? Um, You just mentioned Thomas. So we got some more feedback from another big Barbara Pym fan. And I know that this is somebody who Bonnie has spent a little time with because I've seen her on some of the videos, Sean, the book (laughs) mania. And he says, I blame, which is to say I'm profoundly grateful to, Thomas of the book blog hogglestock.com and formerly of the Reader's Podcast for my Barbara Pym addiction. Within the past decade, I read her complete works in publication order and am champing at the bit to do it all over again. I love the way she shapes and lampoons her characters with precise comic adverbs. Quote, she's a kind of decayed gentlewoman, said Harriet, comfortably helping the curate to trifle. That's from some tame gazelle or do you know, Mrs. Pollard and Miss Dove and Susan. She indicated the group of chinless aristocratic looking ladies. I had noticed when I came in, I had a quick foretaste of the sort of conversation we should be making and said hastily that I must be going home now. That's from a glass of blessings. And Sean says, I love her female protagonists, always odd, often spinsters. Most of them, a mix of knowingness and bewilderment. They move through and observe the world with wry hilarity. A Pym novel usually exposes the silliness of the conventional love plot, but it also lays bare its excellent women's longings for love. Her characters find themselves in silly situations, yet Pym embeds deeper, vulnerable truths along the way. I thought, wow, that's Mm -hmm. a great summary, too. Well put. Yeah, Yeah, very well put. Yeah. Thomas.
0: Yeah, Bonnie, you you, go ahead. Thomas.
2: Thomas also got me to read uh, Anita Bruckner, who he he's mm. uh, would always bring up and say she never wrote a bad book and mm. he's right because <laughs> then I read yeah. I read them all and yeah uh, she's pretty terrific too but yeah he was yeah. he was good at recommending Pim all the time
0: <laughs> I will um, it, you know we talked started by bringing up Kim a lot but yes I w- just take the moment to think uh Thomas for and Anita Bruckner addiction mm-hmm. because I had read uh just her Booker winning uh, novel you know mm-hmm. before I started listening to the readers and his enthusiasm and ability to talk about Anita Bruckner got me back into her forever grateful and again I'm all, I'm pre pre grateful for his uh uh bringing you know it sounds like for many of us <laughs> um the the this love of Barbara Pym so Thomas Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Thomas has excellent taste because yes. he, he likes May Sarton too. No, so he, he just, there, all the Willa Cather. <laughs> he, he may have been the one who got me to, to be more interested in Anthony Trollope than I had been in the past. So. Yeah. No. And that's been Absolutely. delightful. Do you want to well, do a
1: little more? Um, we got a couple more reader comments sure. or do you want to save you those for later?
0: I'm good going. Do you want me to go ahead and share the one from our good friend Jackie? Sure. Uh, joined us on the Hotel Novels. Um, I... She, she gives a, a, a nice uh, thanks at the beginning to Ali, Heaven Ali, the blogger uh, who said she says maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago uh, prompted Jackie to read Barbara Pym. It says her enthusiasm for Pym really came through in her posts about the various novels she'd been reading and revisiting back then. Uh, and here's what she, Jackie's own journey uh, has been. so My first Pym was Excellent Women which many readers suggested as a good place to start, partly because it's one of her best novels, and it came early in her career, making it a good entry point. Naturally, I loved the social comedy and dry wit, which are two of her trademarks, I think, but what really surprised me was the perceptiveness and honesty about various aspects of life for a spinster back in the early 50s. I guess I hadn't been expecting that level of insight or depth before going in. You think, from the way the books have been marketed, that they're going to be light, maybe a bit fluffy, and while there's a lot of gentle humor in her novels, there's sadness too, something darker about the impact of unrequited love and being taken for granted, and a kind of and kind of left on the shelf. I like that she gets those things across in a subtle, sometimes amusing way. I also love how she's created this whole Pym universe that seems at once both ridiculous, absurd, and entirely recognizable and familiar. (laughs) I don't know how she manages to pull that off so brilliantly without it feeling twee, but somehow she does. And I also love how some of her characters keep popping up for cameo appearances in other novels. For instance, Mildred Lathbury, you talked about this, Bonnie, and that nice Everard Bone from Excellent Women are mentioned in another later novel. I can't recall which one, possibly Jane and Prudence, but they definitely come up. While I've yet to read two or three of Pym's late novels, I think my favorite has to be Quartet in Autumn. The dry humor is still there, but there's a real poignancy to this one too, probably because she wrote it in 1976 while still in her wilderness period, having been dropped, rejected by Jonathan Cape in 63. The novel was published after the TLS piece led to her renaissance, but I think she must have written it in 76, right at the end of the wilderness years. I've read Quartet twice now and hope to go back to it again at some point, as it definitely stands up to multiple readings. In some respect, it's a sad, melancholy novel, but the characters are beautifully observed. Mm. Thank you, Jackie. That's, uh, again, Jackie kind of mentioned she was worried that might be too long, and I'm like, nope, we don't. (laughs) Not too long to have a lot of great things to say in it, you know? No, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I mean, we got one other piece of feedback
1: from people that we reached out and we just kind of reached out to people that we knew from being online. We're big fans of Barbara Pym just to get some different perspectives on why. And so I'll just read the last one here, which comes from everyone's favorite librarian, Nancy Pearl, (laughs) who joined us for our episode late last year on The Magic of Libraries. And here's what she had to say about Pym. She says, I've read my first Barbara Pym novel. It was Some Tame Gazelle, her first book in 1983. I was working at a bookstore in Tulsa and the Harper sales rep, Harper was then distributing Dutton Books, I believe, recommended the novel to me. Reader, I loved it. That was the beginning of my passion for Pym's novels, and in the ensuing 40 years, I still love her books. For me, Pym's novels about excellent women, well-educated spinsters devoted to quoting minor English poets, the curates at their church, more or less comfortable in their state of spinsterhood, are the perfect combination of gentle humor and a kind of tart acerbity about what might be seen as the humdrumness of their lives. I love Pym for the same reasons that I love the poems of Philip Larkin, who was a friend and supporter of Pym's works. The way they both have of lulling you along and then blammo, the punchline gets you every time. My three favorite Pym novels, all comedies of manners, are Some Tame Gazelle, Excellent Women, and No Fond Return of Love. The best way to introduce Pym to a new reader is to quote from some of the books. Take the opening line of No Fond Return of Love, a late novel of Pym's published in 1961. Quote, There are various ways of ending a broken heart, but perhaps going to a learned conference is one of the most unusual. (laughs) She says, it's hard for me to see how anyone could not continue reading after that sentence. When Mildred Lathbury, the platonic ideal of the excellent woman and the narrator of Pym's second novel, Excellent Women, learns that a married couple has moved into the flat below hers and that they will perforce be sharing the one bathroom, she muses, the burden of keeping three people in toilet paper seemed to me rather a heavy one. And then she says, and for some tame gazelle, these musings of Belinda Bede, whose thirty years of unrequited love for the Archdeacon Henry Hawcleve doesn't prevent her from observations like these. Quote, men took themselves so seriously and seemed to insist on arguing even the most trivial points. And when one reached middle age, it was even more true that all change is of itself an evil and ought not to be hazarded but for evident advantage. And, Also, it was morning and it seemed a little odd to be thinking about poetry before luncheon. (laughs) So thank you so much. Um, Such great quotes and such a good oversight of just everything Mm -hmm. there is to love about her from the sadness and melancholy to to the funny little one-liners. So thank you to everyone who sent in their thoughts. It just gives a nice range of, there are many similarities about what everybody loves about her work, but you can also see that there are little things that different people notice that you know, when they bring it up, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But I, it's not necessarily what drew me to her. So that's what I love about hearing from other people about their experiences.
0: I wonder if Nancy would consider Barbara Pym to be one of her influences in her own novel, mm. George and Lizzie. I brought that up when we were with her. I, you know, George and Lizzie. I said that kind of is a, it. It just sounds good to read. It's like Jane and Prudence. You know, you just have these names that that seem to somehow stick out that roll mm-hmm. together. And, uh, when I read George and Lizzie or rather had uh, Nancy Pearl read it to me, you know, mm. she came over and, uh, you know, through <laughs> the magic of, uh, uh, an, an ebook that she herself narrated, <laughs> nice. uh, uh, you know, I got to listen to her, read her, her novel. And there's those lines you just read, they, there's so many things like that in George and Lizzie that I, I just wonder if she would say, oh yeah, for sure. You know, or mm-hmm. if it'd be like, I don't know, I don't know, maybe,
1: <laughs> right. but it's interesting. Yeah, oh, so much, so much good stuff here. Um, I don't know, Bonnie. We I want to make sure we give you plenty of time. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you want to to touch on generally or any specifics no, I, about her work?
2: I, I think between you two and the, all the uh, responses you've got from people, we've got a pretty good idea of why everybody should Thank go you. out and start reading Barbara Pym if you haven't yet.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. I think it's interesting that pe- so many people have mentioned different entry points. You know, you can mm-hmm. read them chronologically. But for example, I came to a quartet in autumn. That was the first one I read. And as it turns mm-hmm. out, yes, it was a complete outlier. And it wasn't representative necessarily of everything about her other works. But for me, it was the perfect entry point. And it hasn't caused me to blink at all when I've you know delved into some of these other ones. And they're mm-hmm. not the same book. But the power of her writing and her insights into humanity are still there. So if anybody's thinking of where to dip in their toe, I mean, I think you've gotten plenty of good suggestions during this episode. But mm-hmm. what I would say is just start somewhere um, mm-hmm. and keep an open mind. I don't think that you could really start in a bad place from everything that I've read so far. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I agree. Uh, I do have a question th- <clears throat> that both of you can answer to some degree because Crampton Hotnet, I know you read that one, Paul. Mm-hmm. How are these posthumously published... Uh, Books again. There, are, there are four of them. Um, two of them were written when she had already had a lot of writing under her belt and a lot of publishing, you know, an unsuitable attachment and an academic question. Both published posthumously, but written in the that wilderness period, as as, mm-hmm. as we've talked to, uh, about. But Crampton Hotnet was written in you know maybe around 1940, and Civil to Strangers in 36. Are those worth reading? Or are those Clearly, you know, if you, if you love him, sure, go back and read him. Uh, but are, are they also strong on their own? If you guys remember and, and care to answer that. I can weigh
1: in really briefly and then I'll defer to, to Bonnie's expertise, well, but I would just say that mm-hmm. I I would say in some ways I could tell that it was an earlier novel, but I think it's like we've talked about where there's an author who you can see they're starting to experiment and, and work on ideas And a lot of the themes that come up in her later, maybe more mature or more polished works are all right there. And so I wouldn't say that it's only for Pym fans. I would say they, they are absolutely wonderful in their own right. And anybody could read them. I do think that on this one in particular, I noticed there was maybe a little less polish or, or it was almost like you could tell that she was still working on some of the ideas, but all of that said, it is absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel like it was a minor work by any means. Would you agree, Bonnie, or what do you think?
2: I would agree. And I, but I would say, you know, if you haven't read any Pym, that's probably not the best place to start. Uh, I also, I wouldn't start with Quartet and Autumn either. I think that's something, get used to some of her, earl, her other works and then go mm-hmm. to, because Quartet and Autumn is so different. Um, wonderful, but different. Right. Uh, so, for someone who hasn't read, I I would say start somewhere else rather than these few that were uh, published posthumously. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's interesting. I didn't <clears throat> I I didn't realize this. I'm just looking at a little bit more deeply. I've probably seen this in the past and should have been better prepared, but it does look like the first book she wrote was Some Tame Gazelle. Uh, mm-hmm. it says she read it wrote it originally in 1934. Uh, it was rejected, uh, by several publishers, um, uh, including Jonathan Cape, who eventually did publish her and then drop her. Uh, but, but they had expressed uh, interest in her writing. And so that's, that's interesting because I kind of assumed the, that like Crampton Hodnet and, um, civil strangers was at, were actually pre, and then she finally, you know, on her third novel or thereabouts got it going, but mm-hmm. it looks like, uh you know, those two may have come afterwards. uh, Yeah. uh, The One thing I will say about that. Yeah, you're right. And the one thing
1: I will say is I, I don't know if the difference being why that one maybe feels a little more mature is that during the 15 years between when she originally wrote it and when it was published, it sounds like she did do a fair amount of heavy revising and and uh, changing of it. And so again, not to say that those other ones are not mature or polished, but I do think maybe that's why that one doesn't quite feel like that a makes sense. Novel. That'd be my guess. She developed you know, it over a decade and a half. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just so interesting that the ebbs and flows of her career. But it makes me very excited <laughs> that, despite all that, it's it it's hopeful that great literature, despite all the trends and you know the the publishers maybe sticking their nose up at something, you know, I'm sure for the most part, a lot of these books find a way to rise back up, even if it's through Philip Larkin or just groups like all of us who are so passionate about it. You know, you wonder how many people like Thomas and some of these other people have spread her works to just through word of mm-hmm. mouth. And, right. and then clearly obviously with her the New York times and New York review of books have acknowledged it, but they're still writing about her. It's just encouraging to know that despite the trends and, and the different things that come up in life, you know, art like this will continue to find a way to, to see the light.
0: Yeah, that New Yorker article was written a year ago in in twenty twenty two, and she died forty plus wow. years before that. Yeah, it's, it's she's she's still finding her audience, and we're still finding her, I guess. And it it is it's 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 wonderful. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining today to help me, you know, kind of keep uh, my excitement for Barbara Pym going. It's definitely inspired me to say, get back to her work. Stop. Stop kind of thinking you'll parcel these out over a long period of time because, you know, who knows how long up yeah i can't do that indefinitely <laughs> if i want <laughs> to read these i got to get to them sometime um, because especially if i want to do what bonnie has has done and i want to reread them you know that that might be my main goal is to get to where i can reread them uh mm-hmm. this is a has been a, an exciting and kind of just a nice pleasant conversation about her work and uh again i hope listeners don't mind that i came at it from a perspective of relative uh you know uh, forward-looking uh, excitement rather than uh, <laughs> enthusiasm for all the things I've read, uh, though that's certainly there too. We yeah. know what Bonnie's uh, going to read next because she told yeah, us. And then,
1: So Trevor, <laughs> where are you thinking? Which Do you have your eye on any particular pen for your next one? Because I'm thinking I'm probably going to go with Jane and Prudence. Which that's the one, one I... for me too. It's okay. the
0: next one. I mean, Some Tame Gazelle and then Excellent Women and mm-hmm. then Jane and Prudence in terms of her publication order. And mm-hmm. it just, mm. maybe that's the way to to go about this, yeah, we'll at least for now. now. <laughs>
2: well, I said then by then- you two certainly seem very knowledgeable. I'm not sure you needed my two cents worth, but I'm happy to oh, be no. here, happy to be here.
0: We thank not you so much, and, and thanks for, again, putting up with the difficulties last oh, time well. and, and allowing us to reschedule your time for for many reasons. One, you, you have shared some great thoughts mm-hmm. on PIM for sure and have led to our excitement for it. And we appreciate that a whole lot, but also Bonnie, it's just been delightful to sit down with you. We could have done this about any author or any topic, and it would have been wonderful so thank you yeah. so much for for joining well, us I'm happy
2: to be here i was I really enjoyed it so
0: We'll yeah, we have to do. work to get you back on Could and let you, you choose me. this time. We we assigned you to said, hey, Bonnie, we need an expert. Come on. But I'd be interested to know what you would like to talk about and have you back
1: on. <laughs> well, and anybody who doesn't follow Bonnie on social media absolutely should because she has wonderful insights and, and great mm-hmm. recommendations oh. all the time as well. And I'll wow. give a little plug for her uh, bite-sized book chat. <laughs> You've okay. done a couple of those with yeah. Sean, the Book Media Yeah, I, so, I think I did yeah, too. Sh- <clears throat> yeah so go check those out but yeah bonnie it's, it's so wonderful to be able to
0: chat with you and, and talk to you in person well thank you I've i will find those it. and put them into the into the show notes oh yeah, boy which, uh,
2: <laughs> okay well thanks a lot appreciate <laughs> thank you thank you appreciated
0: both. it all right Every, listeners we'll be back here in a couple of weeks remember we'll do a giveaway next time for the dry heart if you have it already or or just don't want to wait for the giveaway you know, jump in for our book club coming up in the, you know, over the summer. So we'll talk to you soon. Thanks everybody.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the MOOCs and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the MOOCs and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at Mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at MOOCs and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon, If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.